For me, I know what it's like to have that animal condition, to be to be affected by the heat or the wind or the cold or the rain or a storm or you know or, or my own fatigue. And I believe that if you, or I know this to be true, if you want to truly succeed in life, you have to do things that are hard so that other things seem easy. Welcome to Claiming Your Confidence, the podcast. I'm Katrina Blowers, and as a journalist, speaker, and mentor, I know what it's like to have confidence. I also know what it's like to have to dig really deep and find it all over again. I've interviewed hundreds of high-profile people, and this is what I know for sure. We all suffer fear, imposter syndrome, and self-doubt, no matter how shiny our life appears to be. So let's reframe the confidence conversation together and uncover the hacks and secrets to get more of it. Claiming your confidence starts now. As a Special Forces officer, Bram Connolly served several tours in Afghanistan and was awarded the Distinguished Service Medal for Leadership in Combat. Bram says the most successful people in the world all have one thing in common. They never ask for permission. And mental toughness and visualisation aren't just tools to prepare you for the battlefield, they're tools for life. In this inspiring conversation, you'll learn about the advantage of fear, how to reset your frame of reference, and how to build habits that lead to human optimization. Let's claim our confidence with Bram Connolly. Bram, I'm so excited for you to join me today. Thank you so much. G'day, Katrina. How are you? I'm great. Look, how how I usually start these things is I get people to set the scene for our listeners and Mm. tell us a little bit about where you are right now, describe the room and what you're wearing so people can picture you in their mind. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. It's a podcast, right? So um, (laughs) actually I'm in my little office here in the city in Perth and I've been in here since 3.30 this morning because I... um, had a Telstra-connected cycling event that I was a guest for. Um, so, yeah, that's so I'm tired, but that's okay. You'll still get the best out of me. Um, I'm in, what, brown, brown, I don't know, pants, some sort of hiking boots, a polo shirt with a hindsight leadership logo, and... Um, yeah, and I'm I'm here ready to go. Good stuff. So let's let's just talk a little bit about, you know, how you got to where you are today for people who don't know who you are. And you're kind of like me in that I uh, always knew what I wanted to do with my life. From the, the age of seven, I knew that I wanted to be a journalist. Mm. And you, from reading about you, you were kind of the same in that, you know, joining the army just held such an allure for you, mm. even though it was kind of tradition to following the footsteps of um, many of the men in your family, including your dad, and become a firefighter instead. Where did this dream begin? Yeah, look, I'm not sure and I'm not a very spiritual person, but I actually wonder if some of this stuff is just predestined and you can't shake it. It's fate. But um, I guess that would be a little bit fatalistic. But I guess in some ways a lot of it had to do with the recruiting campaigns that we've been doing the army was doing around the 1980s and and also that allure of just something bigger and better out there than Fairview Park in South Australia. I just had this 
this this desire to go and search um, and to experience other things. And I think the army really represented my my ticket out of there, um, as it probably has for generations and generations of Australian soldiers. Yeah, and you used to play like combat games in the in the fields <laughs> with your mates. <laughs> That's yeah, pretty well, cute. I think most kids play like cowboys and Indians, or you know, some sort of a some some sort of a war game. And maybe it's not a great indictment on our society. I don't know, but um, I certainly we certainly used to go up into the into the hills, the foothills of Adelaide, with slingshots and have a red force and a blue force, and off we'd go. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you were sixteen, because you weren't quite old enough to enlist yet, you um, you went. Jackarooing, which mm. is a pretty tough thing for a sixteen-year-old to do, and you learnt some life lessons as well. Can you can you imagine that station owner? Because back then there was no internet, there was no there was no going for a job and seeing someone over Zoom. Um, in 19, 1990, it was you know this this guy responds on a telephone and says, "Hey, I'm sixteen. I'm a big strapping lad. I'm coming." And then this diminutive little, and I wasn't. I mean, I was still growing, so I was 55-something kilos. I get off this bus at um, Arabiddy, um, at the Cocklebiddy uh, Roadhouse, and, and, and yeah, they, that's what they had, this young 16-year-old kid coming of age, um, younger than their kids or around the same age as their own kids, actually. So, um, yeah, it was a, a baptism of fire in some ways. And when, like, because we're, we're obviously looking at this through the lens of confidence, and when we think about the kind of kid you were even then, you're 55 kilos, and you're doing a pretty big thing, leaving mm. home for the first time and going jackarooing, you obviously had some kind of self-belief in that you set your sights high and you you dreamed big for yourself. Yeah, I didn't know what that was at that time. It was just a belief. I did have a, a, a belief. I could walk around and hold my head high and quite proud I think um and I was a really good 800 and 1500 meter runner in the day as well and so a lot of I'd tasted a little bit of success and knew what that was like but a lot of that success didn't equate into into everything else that I was doing um as I soon found not long after I was stripped of all um you know my personality through uh recruit training where they just shave your head and they're like right here you are you're now a name and a number um and so the journey began yeah, so at 17 when, as you say, you, you have your head shaved <laughs> and I would imagine they would make that first year pretty tough on purpose, am I right? Yeah, so one of the really defining things about the Australian Defence Force, a lot of people think that it's it's going to be um, hierarchical by nature, but actually what happens is they strip you of everything and then they give you a certain amount of imposed discipline and that doesn't last forever. I say through the through the book, The Commando Way, that imposed discipline and self-discipline really are the same thing. It's just, just that self-discipline, you're the one imposing it on yourself. So the whole idea for the first really three months is to impose a lot of discipline on you so that you learn that self-discipline. So you start to make your bed in the morning. So you clean, you clean all the things that you that you're meant to clean. You leave things in good order. You're at places on time. Because if you're not, the second order effect of that is something bad happens to you. They take something away or they give you a punishment. So that imposed discipline probably was the first time I'd had discipline like that um, in my life. Could you see at the time the the greater good for those things or did you kind of hate it a little bit? I gave myself absolutely no other option than to be successful and I did hate it occasionally but the majority of the time I was just, I just knew I, I just had to suck it up and 
and just get on with it to go to where I wanted to go. I also knew in the back of my mind that this recruit training, this wasn't the real army, that it was it was a, a necessary evil almost. So I knew, I felt like one part of me knew it was a bit of a game and the rest of me sort of knew that I just had to get through it unscathed. So as you say, a lot of your identity is stripped away. Does that include your confidence as mm. well? And then I guess you would need to have to start rebuilding that again in order to do many of the things that you went on to do. So talk us through, like, how do, how do you rebuild that? And does it start from you or does it start from being given more opportunities and more responsibilities? Is it a structured thing? No, everyone around you is really confident and you get to see in the Defence Force what good looks like from a leadership perspective. So there's a lot to be confident about and they, they teach you that that confidence. So at that point, I, I hadn't really lost any confidence. I did later on down the track. But in those in those early years, it really was all about little wins every day. And you're given a little bit more responsibility, a little a little bit more latitude. And so the confidence is growing and growing and growing because they they break you down so far, but then they build you back up really rapidly so that you at the end product of of the six months of training when you when you arrive in an infantry battalion, you know, we're talking now about a, a really confident 17-year-old that doesn't yet know about um, failure, to be fair. Mm, which, you know, you you really did have to learn those those lessons in a big way. Um, so Somalia was your first posting overseas, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yep. And then in 1997, mm. a commando unit was created and there was something like 100 applicants and only 20 made it through and you were one of them. Amazing, amazing. Like you must have been pinching yourself. What did you describe for us what that selection process was like and did you ever, did you ever like, did you give yourself any chance of failing or were you always determined to get in? Katrina, we've got to go back. We've got to go, we've got to go back in between Somalia and second and for RAR commando selection because in the middle there, was one of the most defining things of my life, which was the Special Air Service Regiment selection, which I failed. And the the thing was, as I said before, I was a really good, really good runner, which I equated to fitness. Um, I was an, I was a sub two minute eight hundred meter runner, a sub five minute fifteen hundred meter runner, and around a sixteen minute five k runner. So I equated running to everything that you had to do to be fit. I didn't understand toughness. And so I applied for the Special Air Service Regiment um, after we came back from our operational deployment in Somalia. And I think we we flew from Townsville to Perth, and I haven't prepared myself for this because I was fit. You know, I was as fit as you could get. I was the fastest runner in the platoon. So I arrived I arrived in uh, Perth, and this we, we we get on this bus from the airport. We're all together. I look around, and they're all guys just like me, so I've got as good a chance as anyone. Um, although they're a lot older, most of them are 10 years older. And then the doors to the bus open up and this mountain of a man who I, who I know well nowadays um, through experiences from the 15 years that I spent in special forces, but this mountain of a man with the most beautiful beret you've ever seen gets on this bus <laughs> and he was like a Greek Adonis. And I, I, I knew right there and then that I wasn't good enough. I, I just knew it. And I had this dread come over me. And then we did the first activity and then the second activity. And I think we did a swim test and I failed. That was the first thing I'd ever failed in my life. 
And then there's this whole story where they came out holding, you know, someone had dog tags and we all had to get into it. They'd lost their dog tags and who was it? You've got to own up and we're all out in the push-up position and no one would own up. And and I thought maybe I should just say they're mine so I can get out of here. And then the next like two or three hours were spent carrying packs that weighed the same amount as I did up and down these hills out at Bindoon. And it was a, you know, it was a stinking hot day. And, and I, I, I think I strained my back ever so slightly, not, not enough to stop me from doing anything in the future in a combat sense, but definitely enough for it to play on my mind and go, you know what, this is my out. And I used that and I used that out, but then, but then, and so I was withdrawn from the course. I was one of the first withdrawn from the course. And then I went back to Townsville and I sort of kept it a little bit quiet. And then slowly over time, people asked about who's done SAS election, this sort of stuff. And, and I would be saying, oh, you know, yeah, I did. I lasted a couple of weeks, you know. But really, it was three days. And one, one day I got found out for that lie. And it was by someone who I, who I had a lot of respect for. And I remember we were all standing around in a group and this person said, said something. Someone said something about SAS election. I said, oh, yeah, you know, I did that. I lasted a couple of weeks. I might go back one day and give it another crack. And this guy goes to me, no, you didn't, mate. And I was like, oh, well, uh, what do you mean? And he goes, mate, you were one of the first off the course. You were, you were pretty much gone on a second or third day. And I've had this just feeling of massive guilt come over me. Oh. And I knew right there and then. And I wasn't upset that I'd been caught out in the light. I was upset because I had reframed it in my mind and thought it was success. And it wasn't. And I, I felt mm. absolutely terrible about it. But then the worst thing that happened was my confidence got absolutely knocked out of me. I knew I knew I would never pass this AS selection again. It was in my head. I couldn't do it. I'd never get into special forces. Um and so roll on a few more years, I guess I compartmentalized that in the back of my head. And I continued on my on my military journey. You know, I did the, the reconnaissance course. I did a couple of other courses that were that were hard courses to do and hard courses to pass, and I passed them. Um, and then I ended up down in 4th Battalion, and we were told we were going to re-raise as a, as a commando unit. And at that point, I was now a section commander, which means that I, I had, um, in total, I had nine men uh, under my charge. And we all lined up for this, this course. And I had this dread come over me, but I prepared myself this time. I left no stone unturned. I went as hard as I could in the training physically and mentally. And then on the day that we, on the day that we went to get on the buses to start this, um, this selection course, I remember looking around and thinking, okay, I've been here before, but this time I've still got as good a chance as anyone of passing this, but I know I've done the work. And, and I'm not going to withdraw myself. They'll have to withdraw me. That's the pledge I give to myself. I won't give up. They'll have to withdraw me. And for the whole duration of that four, four to six weeks, I think it was four weeks and then two more weeks after that on some specialist courses before we went on to a six-month cycle, I remember thinking all I have to ever do is put one foot in front of the other. That's all I ever have to do. And then and I'll finish everything. If I finish everything, then, then they can tell me I'm not good enough, but I won't tell myself I'm not good enough this time. Um, and ultimately, as you say, there was an 80% attrition rate. And one of the things I found, and I'm sorry to make this so long, but one of the things no, I found, it's great. one of the things I found during that process on a selection course is that gave me a new frame of reference for every single thing hard in my life after that, whether it be a half Ironman race, whether it, whether it be, you know, combat in Afghanistan or, you know, leading reconnaissance on, uh, patrols for long-range patrols in, in Timor on the border. You know, I learned I, – I already knew what really hard was because I had a frame of reference, which is what the selection course does, and I didn't give it the credit that it deserved 
um, in 1995, but I did in 1997. Um, prior preparation prevents poor performance, as they say. Yeah, yeah, piss poor performance. Well, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is what I, I love. Um, I love that story, by the way. But one of the things you talk about in your book is coming up with a frame of reference mm. and that's how you um, push yourself forward in, in unfamiliar situations or when you're out of your comfort mm. zone. So for everyday people who've never been in the Army, how would you describe what a frame of reference is and mm. how can it help you? We, we have lost so much about what it is to be a human animal, the human condition. You know, I'm inside this um, box of emotion right now in my office. Um, you know, I'm, I'm impervious to the weather outside. I'll get in my air-conditioned or heated car and I'll drive home and then I'll close the windows and I'll go to sleep in a doona. So, so we are soft. For, for me, I know what it's like to have that animal condition, to be, to be affected by the heat or the wind or the cold or the rain or a storm or, you know, or, or my own fatigue. And I believe that if you, or I know this to be true, if you want to truly succeed in life, you have to do things that are hard so that other things seem easy and continually moving that frame of reference. Now, I've got a 10-year-old and 8-year-old son. If there's a storm outside and, and, and it's raining, I'm like, who wants to go for a bike ride? And those guys chuck their hands up because they're, they're young, they're eager, they're keen, they're probably full of testosterone. We chuck helmets on because, you know, you might don't worry about the lightning, we might fall off our bikes. You know, and we go out in the elements and we experience that. And that, that for them shifts their frame of reference, gives them a new frame of reference. And it's like, it's, you know, we're defined by our yes and no's. We, our bodies look like our yeses and our no's. So what I mean by that is, yes, I'll have another dessert. Yes, I'll drink five coffees a day. Yes, I'll have a hamburger on the way home. No, I won't do this hard workout. No, I won't go with you. That sounds challenging. We are purely defined by all of our yes and no choices. I think that once you've got a frame of reference that's really tough, it's easier to think of those yes and no choices and go, you know what? I could do without that or I could do without mm -hmm. this or I could do with that. And then we make clearer choices. We've got tough frames of reference to, to hinge every decision on. Um, I just think people should get out more and do things that are tough. You know, I, mm -hmm. I ended up becoming a mountain warfare supervisor. Um, I was a lead climber for the unit. Um, I went to the United Kingdom and, and, and climbed, climbed with the Royal Marines. Um, I'm scared of heights. And I didn't tell hardly anyone that because I just thought to myself back in those days, if I'm scared of something, let's face this. Let's get it done. Let's become an expert in that area. Another thing you talk about, which I love, is your term embrace the suck and how you're like, you know, if it's raining, like you just made the, the point about your sons in the storm, you're like, come on, this is amazing. This is going to be so great. When when did you first learn to do that and mm. how has it helped you in different difficult scenarios? Yeah, it's, it's linked to probably a little bit of the Anzac tradition, I guess, as well. Um, and and our ancestors in the in the British. So when I was on exchange with the Royal Marines, I remember we were at a place called Dartmoor. It was really cold, wet, windy, and they used to do this thing called a non-emotional, where you would have to put your, your helmet might be full of freezing cold water, and you'd put your helmet on, and the water would go down the small of your back. And as you put it on, <laughs> you're not allowed to make any face, any sign of emotion or anything. Um, and that was called a non-emo. And if you could do that, everyone would roll around laughing. There, there seems to be humour in not being emotional about things that suck, right? And I, and I started to realise at that point, okay, so when things are bad, it's actually only our own interpretation of whether that's bad or not. It, there's only things. 
we get to determine if it's good or bad. And you know, I'd, I'd have to get up. Like I got up at three thirty this morning to do this cycling event, as I, or three o'clock, as I, as I told you. And so I've been in the office ever since. And when I got into the car, put the garage door up, I went, "Good, this is going to be amazing." I'm going to drive to work. There's going to be no one around. I'm so glad I'm so tired, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And, and you can actually reframe things in a positive way that absolutely suck. And and by doing that, you not only embrace it, you empower it because, and I mean, I was going to save this for the end of the episode, but words become worlds. It's a, it's a basic psychological principle. Words become worlds. If you say, you know what, no, this will be good, then you've got a, you've got an optimistic outlook. You know, and I mean, yeah. I've had to use this in some of the worst places against some of the worst people on earth. I know it to be true. How do you, how do you go with um, teaching your sons to do that? Do they embrace the suck? <laughs> oh, look, they try and they try and trip me up and find things that'll annoy me. <laughs> um, you know, to all the to all the mums and dads out there, parenting, um, raising kids. This is harder for me from a leadership perspective than it was to take specially trained, specially selected you know, young men in my commando platoon and lead them. Like leadership of kids is the <laughs> hardest job on earth. Yeah, I would have to agree with that. And that actually makes me feel quite relieved to hear you <laughs> say that too with all the leadership strategies that you've had. Um, let's talk a little bit about something that you said about how you never know how you're going to react when somebody shoots at you until it's actually happening and how you had to learn to be calm during truly terrifying situations. I mean, you write about all sorts of incredible stories in your book about, you know, getting out of... Um, Black Hawk helicopters and there's already people firing machine guns at you and you just have to run with with um, bullets flying past you. So how did you learn those skills and what did you tell yourself before you got out of the helicopter in the first place? Yeah, I think slowly over time we learn these these skills by visualisation, being exposed to certain stimulus and we, we create those, this is what special forces do or, or infantry even for that matter, is we create those worries. We create people that, and we do that through that visualisation technique. Um, so we know what is happening. And I think that some of the reason that people suffer from post-traumatic stress is because something shocks them um, as opposed to being ready for it. So if you're going to drive through an intersection and I tell you you're going to get hit by another car as you go through, forearmed, forewarned, and you drive through there and get hit. Um, you're probably less likely to have post-traumatic shock from that, depending on the severity of it, of course. Um, whereas if you drive through there, you know, sort of completely ambivalent to what's going on and then you get hit, then the shock is a lot more. So understanding, actually understanding the stimulus that you're going to be receiving is a big part to being able to cope with it. Um, and for me, you know, as a leader of, of those of those guys who, who went to Afghanistan, especially in 2010, a lot of my focus was on creating people who could operate un, in the most austere conditions under, under some really stressful stimulus. Um, and that's how we did that. A lot of it was through experiential visualisation, talking about what it would be, going through it time and time again. Mm-hmm. 
Before we continue with this incredible conversation, I wanted to let you know that for the month of September, I'm taking 20% off my Becoming a Confident Communicator online course. This is seven video masterclasses plus workbooks you can keep forever. They're made just for time poor people. And I'm with you every step of the way teaching you the exact techniques I use on TV and when I speak in public. It'll show you how to tell and sell your story with more poise and polish, whether you're on stage, on screen, or even on your socials. Head to katrinablowers.com and use the code SEPTEMBER20. That code again, SEPTEMBER20. You use that code at checkout for 20% off for September 2020 only. Okay, let's get back to the show. A lot of the kind of spiritual wellness world, you know, there's a lot of stuff on Instagram about just think positive and don't entertain the worst case scenario in case you attract it. So with these visualizations, did you did you think through a range of different scenarios and, and what do you make of that whole kind of movement at the moment to just think positive? Well, no, it doesn't work. Um, so being positive and and sounding positive, I've never heard a leader who's successful by being pessimistic for starters. Let's just get that out on the table. You have to be optimistic if you're a leader. Um, otherwise, you can't get people to do what you want them to do because they want to do it. Um, so you've got to be optimistic. But when you're planning something, whether that be a new strategy or a new direction for a business or perhaps you're starting your own business or something like that. When you're doing those things, you have to look at the permeations of the plan, the second, third order effects. And certainly that's worst case, the most dangerous course of action, the most likely course of action, the worst outcome, the best outcome, and then all the variables within that. So when we were when we were planning long range patrol operations with vehicles in Afghanistan to disrupt Taliban networks, we were, we were planning for when we lost people. We were planning for when we hit IEDs. We were planning for being ambushed. We were, we were doing all this planning in a safe space, in a, in a warm, comfortable office prior to going out there because what happens invariably is you get the stimulus, something bad happens, but you've already visualised a path out of this. And if 90% of the time you have a solution all ready to go, it speeds up your decision-making process and it doesn't prolong the agony of what you're going through. You're able to make quicker decisions. And sometimes those decisions are even automatic if you've got the right things in place. Um, and, and it's great for leadership because people know what the standard operating procedure is going to be. They already know it because you've talked about it. So they understand as a leader what you're going to ask them to do. And in some cases, they do it before you ask which speeds everything up yet again, makes it more efficient. And you've even said those visualisation processes that you've that you've put yourself through have, have enabled you to, first of all, save your own life but mm. um, outwit the Taliban in situations where you've had no comms. Oh, yeah. So by having a, a something to lay over the top of um, drama, the stimulus, the ambush, by having a plan to lay over the top of it, all that's happening in time and space is people are now going through that pre-designed plan. It's like time travel. So if your communications are down but something happens, everyone knows what our response will be because we've practised it. We've practised it time and time again. So it can be an automatic 
um, solution. And the best thing about it is as a leader, when you create other leaders that can make decisions because they understand your definition of done. So for me, uh, an ambush you know, down a, a, a laneway or an alley, the definition of done for me is that everyone is extracted out of that site, that we, we've recovered all of our equipment, that we've moved to a safe space, and we've set our own ambush for a follow-up. Everyone knows that's going to be my definition of done. So if they don't hear from me, they just go through the process to get us to that definition of done. Um, it's a powerful, a powerful thing once you get leaders that can lead knowing your intent. Mm. When when I'm at work, so I, I work um, in television news and we often have big events that we need to do hours of rolling live coverage and we sometimes mm. don't know much information and we're expected to front up and just talk off the top of our heads and it can be quite stressful, right? But we often say to each other, don't worry, no one's going to die. <laughs> we're not saving lives. In your situation, and this is really what came to my mind as I was reading about some of the stories you were telling, people were going to die if you made the wrong decision or, you know, as a result of you potentially directing them to do something that didn't work out. How did you get the confidence to back yourself, especially when many of these things you'd never done before? How, did, how were you not paralysed by indecision? I think, first of all, Katrina, you're talking way too flippantly about journalists and what power they wield with the words that they use, um, especially when, when they're on the spot. Um, like I said before, from a leadership perspective, words become worlds. And when journalists start to make things up or change things or ab-lib, I think they have more of an impact on the world around them than what they realise, which is why we need more good journalists and less of the ones who, who perhaps have egos or just make things up. Um, so I'll put that out there to start with. Sorry about that. Um, no, I like that, but that's now made me feel even more pressure. <laughs> no, well, it should be. It should be pressure. It's a very important job to to be able to convey information, and the same the same goes with you know a, a captain, um, special forces commander. Uh, everything. It's a very important job, and there is a lot in a word, and there's there's a lot when you're conveying information. So, getting getting people to understand. Um, at a personal level, how important you as a leader take communication is the first step. This, the second part of it is also understanding and having them understand that it's personal. Leadership is personal and you understand people at a, at a deep level. You care about them and you'd never ask them to do anything that you wouldn't do yourself. Sometimes those things feel like they could be very, very dangerous and they are. Um, and so. And it's always for a greater good. There were times when when I said to someone, "Let's do this," and they looked at me and then I went, "Yeah, you know what? Let's not do that. That's that's not going to work." Um, but quite often, the burden of leadership is felt too much by the individual. They say leadership is a lonely place. I think if leadership and the army says this a lot, and I've got to say, if you think leadership, and this is to all the generals out there listening who who, who might remember me, if if you think leadership is a lonely place, it's because you're doing it wrong. Leadership should be collaborative and you should be making decisions based on the collective group. Um, there is a time and there is a place for you to have the final say, which I think is probably more what they're, what they're trying to espouse um, by saying leadership is a lonely place. At some point, someone has to make a decision um, and it's a heavy burden. But, yeah, we just you just do what you do and you get trained for. 
I imagine, you know, the army being quite hierarchical, there would be a lot of um, people in senior rank who would walk around with a fair bit of swagger. Uh, How did you come to define what confidence meant for you um, and what what true confidence was? I think that that has changed somewhat in the last decade. I think there's more senior commanders now who who probably are empathetic than ever before. Um, the Australian Defence Force really is a cross-section of what our society is and probably in some ways is showing great leadership by showing what our society can become as well. Um, so I think that that, that has changed. Um, for me, I didn't necessarily have imposter syndrome, um, although I've met some senior commanders that did and confided in me years later. Um you know, and I think that that is that is a real problem. But for me, I think I have this mantra of prove your supporters right. Um, and you know, at every step of the way, I had either mentors or or people who were who were helping my career, and all I wanted to do was prove them right. I think if we look over our shoulder and and worry about proving doubters wrong, we'd be forever stumbling. Um, it's just so much more powerful to be to be optimistic and proving those who, who think you can do it right. Mm, that's beautiful advice. So after about 20 years, you decided instead of chasing high rank that you would do something else with your life. Was that a hard decision to make? Yeah, and you know how I know it was the right decision was because I was as nervous about that as I was about getting on that bus to go to Kapuka and to do recruit training. I, I just knew the time was right. If I'd stayed around, I, I may have I may have made colonel one day um and but what but what was that going i'll just be more of the same i wouldn't have this this ideal around that i am the most important mission and i, I saw I, I saw someone who was killed in afghanistan um while i was there in between two two uh we came in just as the other group was coming out and this this person was killed in a helicopter accident his name is ben chuck and um, Ben was like a very special guy. Everyone who knew him, like everyone who knew him, loved him. Um, he was a brilliant guy, young, fit, um, just always looking to better himself. And I guess when when he was killed, as well as a couple of other guys who, who I weren't as close to were killed in a helicopter accident, you know, I realised just how much um, or how sacred life, you know, really was and the whole development, you know, of what I wanted to become um, I realised that all he ever did prior to him being killed was just be better than he was yesterday. It was all about self-development for him. And so I guess I've moved forward in my life saying, well, I am the mission, and that's why the Warrior You podcast, you know, that's our that's our catch cry. You, you are the mission. Um, mm. Because perhaps self-development is the secret to life. Perhaps that's all there is, is just being better than we were yesterday. Um, and I'm on a, on a journey, my own learning journey, to find I guess my authentic path, and and that isn't in the army anymore in that capacity, um, and it's that's terrifying because that institution defined me as a person and made me who I am, and, and I've had to let that go. Yeah, it really did, and I imagine that entering the corporate world at first, that would have been another a bit of a blow to your confidence there. How did you go about redefining yourself and knowing for sure that the skills that you'd built up over that couple of decades were worthy in the oh, wider world? Look, that is this has been the hardest mission of my life and I've, I've crossed over what feels like an impossible chasm. 
um, military to, to business. Um, and to achieve it, I've got to learn things that other people put on their CVs and, and don't actually ever experience, like humility, teachability, adaptability and failure. Um, you know, people throw those things around like they like that's the thing that they, they define themselves as on their CVs or I actually have to do that. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess at this point, it's creative for me building this leadership resilience business, going into other businesses and, and, and you know, helping solve problems and, and solving problems, not selling products is one of the other things I had to learn. You know, it's, it's, such, a, it's such a different landscape than I ever thought it to be. Um, but it's a, it's a great challenge and, and I've got some really great mentors who, who support me and help me. Um, and, you know, we've, I've had a few no-fail missions which have come close to failing. Um, so, yeah, but here we are. <laughs> well, the other thing I really love about your incredible career in life so far is you write military thrillers. <laughs> tell, us about, tell us about your hero, Matt Ricks. Who is he? Yeah, so, <laughs> okay, Merrick Watts has put you up to this. Um, <laughs> so... Katrina, I identify as a military thriller author and a podcast host and a leadership and resilience consultant. Right? So that's that's how I define myself now. And Matt Ricks, who's the protagonist in in my first two books, so um, the Fighting Season and Off Reservation, he really is just like me. This this flawed character. He's a he's an ex special forces officer. He wore, and the first one, he's a special forces officer. The second one, he's out, he's out of the ADF, and he's an Australian action hero, which I think the world needs, by the way. Um, and, you know, he just stumbles from one thing to the next. Sometimes he makes good decisions, sometimes bad decisions, usually with women. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and cathartically, I've been able to, to re, I don't know, imagine certain circumstances and relive those through, through this art, through the art of writing books. Um, and it's been a great opportunity that I was given by Alan and Unwin, and um, I'm hoping to do another Matt Ricks book so that we can we can finish a trilogy, and then it'd be really great if someone picks it up and makes it into a television series. <laughs> just putting it out yeah, there. This is what I was going to ask you. <laughs> How much of uh, Matt Ricks is similar to you, and were you able to make him better than you at certain things that you wish you'd been better at? Okay, yeah, no, and honestly, he's not me. He is three of the officers in the commando regiment. He's an amalgamation of their best character traits, this one guy, and then on top of all that, he has all of my flaws. Um, and I felt like that was the best way to do that character justice because I, only I understand my inept weaknesses, and so it's easy for me to then portray them over a fictitious character but these other three guys, every you know, what good looks like was there to see. So, so I took all the best of those three and made this one guy. And um, yeah, I think he's a great character. And my, my favourite part um, of Matt Ricks is him being in Italy and trying to, try, you know, trying to chat up the um, local Italian barmaid because he speaks a little bit of Italian. But he's wearing <laughs> he's wearing Merrill boots and a G-Shock watch, and she says in Italian, "No Italian would ever wear shoes like that or that stupid watch." 
and then walks away while he's drinking his cafe latte instead of a piccolo. Um, so, you know, and, and I've got to say that sometimes art imitates life. Um, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love it. And writing fiction, that's a whole new skill set in itself. And you you, yeah. you said yourself in your book that you weren't, you know, a, a great student, you didn't love school. So where did that come from? I was I was pretty decent at English, I must say. Looking back on on school, but I didn't finish year twelve because I joined uh, or I went to cattle station, or sheep station first, and then the then the then the army. But um, but I could I could string a word together, and then the army has certain programs in the army that you can do for education. So I did that, and then I did a university degree part time as well while I was in Afghanistan. I did international relations, majoring in peace studies and societies. So, which is again probably a, a whole nother podcast to talk about how that's juxtaposed to winning a distinguished service medal. But anyway, um, so so I had a lot of opportunity to learn the English vernacular, I guess. Um, but then I had some really great mentors given to me by Alan and Unwin too to make sure that um, the craft uh, that I could actually you know, do what it is that I said I was going to do. Um, and for anyone looking to write fiction, there's a great book by Stephen King called On Writing, which um, and one of the which I read from cover to cover. And one of the greatest things that that Stephen King says in that book is to show, don't tell. Um, and I think it's such a beautiful sentence, you know, show, don't tell. So make your protagonist do something. Don't tell everyone they're doing it. So make make everyone know that he's doing it through his actions and. Um, and and through the environment and the setting and and I think that also goes into real life as well sometimes you shouldn't have to tell everyone what it is you're doing sometimes you just have to go and do it and and I've certainly taken that into into my life now um, you know I, I don't watch the competition that I have I don't look at other businesses I just you know just be the hardest worker in any room and and be so good you can't be ignored um, and I think those sort of sentiments sit deeply inside who I am as a person yeah, you you've got so much going on. I would love to hear about how you structure your mornings just to get it all done. I mean, I know you're up at three thirty this morning, but that's not every day. No. You talk in your book about laziness and how no. you know you just cannot be lazy if you want to be great. Mm. How, how do you structure your day to get everything done and and all the different parts of your life and be a dad and a husband? Mm. Yeah, well, I find that structure is important and by structure I mean on a Sunday sitting down and writing out all the workouts for the week on on a big board so they're all done maybe doing a bit of meal prep as well if possible although I never seem to eat all the meals by Thursday Friday I just throw it out and go and eat whatever Um, but look I have you know um, if then statements so if my alarm goes off at 6 a.m. or 5 a.m., which it does, if my alarm goes off at 5 a.m., then I get changed into the clothes that I've left out the night before. Um, if I get changed in the clothes that I have laid out the night before, then I'll go into the gym and do that workout. Um, if I finish that workout at such and such time, then I will get ready to help get the kids on their way to school. So if and then statements I think are really important, as again rooted in basic psychology, of motivating me to, to do a checklist of things for my day. If I do those things, I find I have more time to do other things during the day, if I do that all through the day. I think people think that freedom is just doing whatever you want, but actually freedom is, you know, as I think Jocko Willink says, you know, structure is freedom or discipline is freedom. Um, so, yeah, I, I think being very, very deliberate about where you put your time 
and the structure of where you know like where you put your time I, I don't focus on things that either don't make you money don't make you happy or don't help someone um and you know where you put your effort should be the things that are going to give you the greatest return again through money through helping someone or through happiness Oh, I love that framework. Thank you so much for sharing that. Now, we are getting to the end of our time together, so I've got a few quick rapid-fire questions to throw at you. So if someone came to you, whether it be an executive or even your your son came to you and said that they needed a quick confidence boost, what would be your number one go-to tip that you would give someone? It's been done by lesser people than you. Yeah, Yep. Good reminder. <laughs> now, is there a book you've read, uh, apart from your amazing books that you <laughs> put into the world, which I will put in the show notes, the links for those, yeah. or even an inspirational quote yeah. that um, you go to that's really inspired you? Um, the, the best book I've read in recent years is David Epstein's Range. Okay. Um, I, I love it. And I love the fact that generalists succeed in a specialist world. And I think if you think you're as crap at everything as I am, <laughs> um, then read Range because being really bad at a lot of things is better than being specifically great at one thing. This blows my mind because you also write in the beginning of your book how you are going for a run and you're like thinking about writing the book and you're thinking, oh, I'm just an average guy. I've just done average things. Yeah. <laughs> you know you're totally not right. Yeah, look, it was a really profound – God, I'm sick of using that word. But it, it was the, – the reason we called it the commando way is because this average guy with average skills and average looks and average athleticism did all these actually pretty amazing things things I guess and the reason that it happened was because there is a certain way that special forces operate and it's about preparation it's about no stone unturned it's about structure it's about discipline it's about sleep um, it's about leadership it's about resilience mental toughness um, so for me I am absolutely a generalist and I know a lot of things about a lot of stuff that doesn't make any sense in my mind until it does um, <laughs> but I don't make one widget you know, yeah, that's not what I do. Yeah. And an inspirational quote that you've used on one of your podcast episodes that really resonated with me was that life is a daily renewable contract. I really love that. Yeah, it's not mine. It's Tim Curtis, who was my ah. Yeah, he was my company commander um for Tag East in two thousand and two. And it's one of the it's actually uh it's actually one of the values of the tactical assault group. And I think it's uh, I've got to say it resonated with me as well, and that's why it's been in the back of my mind for for the best part of a decade. All right. Now, what do you do for pure joy, something that has no outcome attached to it? Uh, I talk to people on the podcast about leadership. It's the thing that holds my attention. So it's part of if you're, if you're inspecting the code of what makes Bram Bram, what holds my attention, it's talking about leadership and how to be better at it. Um, I love it. That's great. And what are you working on right now in your confidence journey to take you to where you next want to be in your life? Oh, gosh, that's so good. <laughs> I'm, I'm 46 and I've got this idea that I want to be under 10% body fat and it's ridiculous and I'm not as fit as I used to be and, and I cave in to donuts and coffee and everything else just like everyone. Um, so for me, I'm working with good coaches to, to keep me as um, in good condition as I can. So coaches need coaches, mentors need mentors. So, yeah, I'm trying to, I guess, from a confidence perspective as well, 
in a, in a business sense, you know, I'm, I guess I'm just trying to mix it with people who are very, very good at what they do. And here I am a new starter at their, at their level. Um, so I'm surrounding myself with mentors to, to help me with that. What's your, um, what's your goal date for getting under 10%? Uh, probably 2050. <laughs> <this rate. laughs> well, I wish you all the luck. I'll send you a box of donuts as a thank you. <laughs> oh I'll really God, test you your forever. willpower. <laughs> Bram, thank you so much. I've loved our chat and you've given us so many great insights and words of wisdom. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Katrina. I really appreciate it. And it's lovely to talk to you. Stay connected by following Claiming Your Confidence or me, Katrina Blowers, on Instagram. For more information on this or other episodes, head to katrinablowers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and make sure you share it with anyone you think would benefit from a confidence pick-me-up. Claiming Your Confidence is created and produced by me, Katrina Blowers. Audio thanks to Term 6 podcast productions. I hope you're having a great week. Thank you for listening to Claiming Your Confidence.